am the king of the ring. It's a good tuna, but I think I paid too much. I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. Welcome to the Japan What Podcast, episode 109. This is the podcast that covers AI market trends, society 5.0, news analysis, odd items, and more. And I'm Matthew, pmbigelow.com, coming at you from the Toshi Hisa Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. The armpit of Asia. That's Matthew, pmbigelow.com, which is where you can go to get show notes, photos, and more. Uh, some of the stuff we talk about on this podcast can be a little bit weird, a little bit out there, but I make sure they're all documented and all available at the website, MatthewPMBigelow.com. And I've noticed that some people will um, go there and they won't listen to the podcast, but they will go and read all the show notes and send me messages about them. And that's also kind of interesting. It's like, oh. No, you don't only get the uh, the feedback from from the the audio. You can also get feedback from the website itself. Anyways, the the temperature here in Tokyo, Japan, is a nice 25, 26 degrees, cool breeze outside, and uh, the nightmare of of the summer is is over. Uh, not to get too much into it, but have you ever lived through? And if you live, live in Japan, then you do. It was like eighty-eight days of thirty-three degree weather or more, like thirty-three degrees Celsius. And it's not like it reaches thirty-three degrees at two or three p.m. and then edges back down. It's like thirty-one degrees in the morning, thirty-three degrees in the afternoon, back down to thirty-one degrees, and it's one hundred and twenty thousand percent humidity. Anyways, it's over. It's done. And uh, honestly, the, the the irritability factor goes down, and, and the and the and the desire to drink like seventy five beers a day instantly vanishes. It's, it's weird. Threshold. I'm obsessed with threshold. There's a threshold, and the threshold was met. Uh, anyways, so yeah, this this is the podcast that covers AI market trends, society five point uh, oh. right, and conflict in the Indo Pacific. Those are. Um, the AI market trends and, and, and security is one most of the podcast, but the other main focus is uh, conflict in the Indo-Pacific. And depending on what's going on in the week, uh, the shift will focus from one to the other. And this week, we're going to focus a little bit more on conflict in the Indo-Pacific. I've um, uh, reached out to some people, and, and one of those people is Mr. Elbridge Colby. Uh, he's um, the grandson of a uh, ex-director of the CIA and uh, fielding operations during Vietnam. And he's also Mr. Colby, Mr. Elbridge Colby is part of a marathon institute. I'm not sure what his title is. He's one of the main guys there. And he was uh, defense and working in the intelligence community for a long time on behalf of the Americans. And now he's part of this shift to um, Taiwan and what that means there. And it's like I... I, I get I, I don't want to say roped in, that's not the right word, but it's like I they have all of these um ambitions to prevent China from taking Taiwan. And part of that is of course using kind of Asia and Japan as a as a forward operating base. But all that kind of means it's like uh, it just prevents China from reaching America. And it does it really matter if all of those like second tier nations fall in China's, uh, path as long as they're used to stop China's spread. Um, you know, they don't frame it that way, but that's kind of the end result often enough. And uh, considering the past, you know, 30 or 40 years of, of, of American foreign policy, especially recently with the fall of Afghanistan, and then there's uh, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, sorry, that saw the resurgence of the Taliban, right? Uh, 20, 20 years and $2 trillion to see the Taliban replaced with the Taliban. It's like, kind of wonder about the of of um, the good that can arise from American intervention at the moment. But at the same time, can you just live without it, right? Can you just live without it? Anyways, we're going to begin the podcast today, a busy day today as usual, and thank you for tuning in, Mr. Listener or Ms. Listener. Uh, we're going to begin today with a couple of odd items, and they're both um, connected to each other in one way or another. The first one is a Japanese vending machine that sells retro toothbrushes. Uh, this comes to us from Sora News 24, the hate read of the week. I'm going to be posting some of these pictures to MatthewPMBigelow.com. All the show notes, the pictures and all that are up there. And 
mean, again, you just kind of visualize it yourself, and it's it's mobile friendly and 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 and, and browser friendly. Japanese vending machines that sell retro toothbrushes. This is written to us by Una McGee uh, just a little bit, of, a couple of weeks ago. This is one weird machine you won't find anywhere else. Where do you buy your toothbrush? Most buy theirs at supermarkets or drugstores or even at dentists if they're particular about it. But did you know that in Japan, you can buy one at a vending machine? If that's news to you, don't worry. Even local Japanese people might not know about the existence of such a machine. Our reporter, Haruka Takagi, didn't even know about it until she stumbled across in a parking lot of a toothbrush-related company near Hoganji Temple in Shimogyo Ward, Kyoto. Um, the sign of the machine reads, use it and realize, toothbrushes, there's also toothpaste. So, interestingly enough, when I was on my honeymoon in uh, Eastern Europe a couple of years ago, uh, Prague... Vienna, Budapest, taking the train, staying in hotels, living the life before COVID hit. In Austria, at the supermarkets, they won't let you buy medical supplies on Sundays, even though they're right in the supermarket. They put like a, they lock them off. They don't even, but the thing is, the toothbrushes are included in this weird religious law. So you try to buy a toothbrush. Like I picked up a toothbrush thinking like they would just sell it to me. And the lady at the cashier, she was like, can't sell you this toothbrush. It's Sunday. <laughs> but here in Japan, you can just buy a toothbrush from a vending machine 24-7, 365. Who would think to, 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 to limit the amount of opportunities that one would be able to purchase a toothbrush? But that's the EU. The EU is full of stupid rules like that. Uh, but uh, there'll be, I'll be posting the pictures. Um, it's just, it, there's nothing really much to say about this whole article except that there's a toothbrush, a vending machine that you can go and enjoy. It's like two toothbrushes for 100 yen, something like that. Mega cheap. But that also leads us into this next one. And I'd um, posted links to this before on the website, but I don't think I've talked about it. This comes to us from the Mainichi, Japan's national daily since 1922. Japan pharma startup developing world-first drug to grow new teeth. This comes to us on September 24th, 2023. We are recording this on September 26th, 2023. Um, Osaka, Kyodo, I guess news. A team of scientists led by Japanese pharmaceutical startup, by a Japanese pharmaceutical startup, has been working on a drug to stimulate the growth of new teeth in what could be a world first, aiming to put it on the market by around 2030. Everything's 2030. Uh, Toregem Biopharmaco, funded by Kyoto University, which is where the toothbrush vending machine was. You think that's a coincidence? is expected to begin clinical trials on healthy adults in around July 2024 to confirm the drug's safety after the team succeeded in growing new teeth in mice in 2018. Mouse teeth. Most people have tooth buds that have the potential to become, new, become a new tooth, uh, in addition to baby and permanent teeth, although the buds usually do not develop and sub subsequently disappear. The team created an antibody drug that inhibits the protein that suppresses the growth of teeth. The drug works on these buds and stimulates their growth. In 2018, the team also administered the drug to ferrets, which have both baby and permanent teeth similar to humans, and new teeth grew. Uh, just, to, just to pause here, I remember that they, they were doing a lot of uh, potential vaccine testing on uh, ferrets as well because uh, ferrets have lungs and humans' lungs, the ferrets' lungs and the humans' lungs are very similar to each other. And so some like preliminary testing can be done on ferrets as well. So it's kind of interesting how we all think we're monkeys and stuff, but uh, maybe we're more like mice and ferrets and pigs. You never know, right? Um, just because we, we walk on our hind legs and monkeys sometimes do, but maybe we're just giant mice ferret creatures, according to the science. In 2018, the team also administered the drug to ferrets, um, which have both baby and permanent teeth similar to humans, and new teeth grew. The team plans to hold a clinical trial for the drug from 2025 for children between 2 and 6 years old with anodontia, who are born without some or all permanent teeth. 
the children will be injected with one dose to induce their teeth growth. There are also hopes to utilize the drug in the future for adults who have lost teeth due to cavities. Quote, Missing teeth in a child can affect the development of their jawbone, said Katsu Takahashi, co-founder of Toregen Biopharma and head of dentistry and oral surgery at Kitano Hospital in Osaka. Quote, we hope the drug will serve as a key to solving these problems, end quote, he said. So there we go. Um, connected there together. Who knew that the, uh, the rich history of Kyoto with their temples and over-tourism was also uh, the temple of the mouth? for the new teeth and toothbrushes and vending machines, for the new world order. I don't, sorry, uh, why not? Yes, these are the tooth for the new world order. 2030, uh, the SDG goals, maybe part of the SDG goals is to inject us with chemicals and drugs that will make us grow like a billion teeth in, in our faces, and uh, that'll be part of the, the new world order, hmm? Maybe that's all part of the plan. Nah, it's just a stupid idea. But it's interesting science nonetheless. All right, that is that. Let's move on to the next topic. Was I high or not high there? High. Or not high. Where should we begin today? Let's take a look at... Um, uh, just a couple of things here. Let's begin. Let's go to Society 5.0. Let's just jump right in. I feel like jumping right into Society 5.0. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. To the All right, so Japan Society 5.0 is a Japanese government initiative, public and partner, public and private partnerships, and they also mentioned the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which is a Klaus Schwabian term. He wrote a book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution, and of course, Klaus Schwab also wrote the book COVID-19, The Great Reset, and he also founded the World Economic Forum, known as WEF. Uh, before the COVID-19 thing hit, WEF was just known as this Davos type thing where people would gather and talk about technologies and solutions. And it was kind of wonky because they flew a bunch of private planes to talk about the environment. But now, ever since the whole um, collaboration between um, the World Economic Forum and most governments around the world has kind of come out, they've been swiped with this giant weird brush. But in Japan, they're still very much involved in the WEF, and I'll be getting to that in a little bit later today as well uh, when we talk about um, the Prime Minister's new economic plans. But anyways, that last part of the that song thing there that was playing is was called uh, the, We Will allow, Be Allowed to Free Us from the Stress of Driving, Enabling Us to Visit Wherever, Wherever. Now, um, of course... Self-driving car technology exists, and it exists pretty well. I mean, it works if there's no humans around. And uh, the more humans that are around, the worse it works, especially once you get more and more vehicles on the road uh, because there's just too much variability. Um, recently, there's been a lot of efforts in some parts of the world, including the United States and some parts in, in Canada and others, to introduce um, self-driving semi-trucks. And you can do long night hauls from... Florida to California or Arizona. Um, and it's like a straight road. The temperature is pretty much the same. Uh, there's not a lot of people on the road because it's a highway and there's not a lot of variability. Um, but once you get into like where taxis need to go and they need to go down streets with construction and kids playing and there's just too much variability, the computers don't know how to analyze all of that in real time and make it work. And even recently, I've seen like traffic jams of self-driving cars in San Francisco because the car works on its own, but doesn't really work in a fleet setting very well. And then people start screwing around with it by putting pylons on top of the cars. And then one self-driving car 
sees a pylon on a car and it doesn't know what that means and it stops in the middle of traffic and then another car will stop and it creates like a domino effect of chaos. So, but if you separate, like with the trucks on the highways, if you separate the humans from the technology, it works pretty well. Another, like we've been doing this for a long time, like for example, with um, our plumbing systems, I mean, or, or pipelines and stuff like that. Uh, there's no, there, you just put a big pipeline in the ground and the oil goes through it and now you don't have people loading it onto trains and the trains are managed by human systems and lights and they come across the other zones. Like it's just all underground and it's in a tube and it just goes to where it needs to go and it gets there pretty quickly. Um, so this, this is what's happening in Japan as well. Japan is planning lanes for automatic vehicles. Uh, this is a key key way to make it work. And um, China has been developing stuff like this as well. They've been using more and more automated vehicles in ports, for example, where you don't, it's like a workspace. And a lot of factories are using more and more uh, automated trolleys or automated pickers and things like that, warehouses with Amazon, right? Once it's in like a regulated space with not a lot of variability around it, a lot of this automated technology works very, very well. Uh, and in China, they've been developing a new city where the um, there's a system of the plan of the envisioned the envisioned plan is that um, there'll be a network of tunnels like the boring company with Tesla is doing a network of tunnels underneath the downtown of a city and there will be no cars on the upper level of this city so there's just a giant network of foot traffic and bicycle traffic and light traffic on the surface of the city. And if you want to get in a car, you take an elevator down to the tunnel network and the self-driving car will drive you across town and you pop up on the other end. But the whole idea is that even with the tunnels, you can regulate the lighting so the lighting is always consistent because if your car is above ground and it's self-driving and the computer is confused by some sort of shadow on something, it will stop or it won't recognize it for what it is. But when it's all regulated and when you don't have the human... Uh, variability involved that's why they're building these underground tunnels and underground systems because once you can remove the, the the previous infrastructure for the next infrastructure to grow it will grow and it will grow very well another common example would be like getting rid of horses on roads so that the cars could take over about a hundred years ago and getting rid of uh, like uh, bicycles on highways and all, all that stuff. So it just expands and expands and expands. But once you try to integrate it all, it doesn't work that well because the new system can't exist with the legacy system. Uh, so this comes to us from worldhighways.com. <laughs> well, have you ever been to worldhighways.com? Uh, I have. I went there for the first time uh, the other day and I found this article on Japan. Uh, this is by MJ Woof. And I'll be posting uh, an article, the, the photo uh, onto MatthewPMBigelow.com. I'll just read a couple of paragraphs here and you can go check out the rest in the link on MatthewPMBigelow.com. Japan is planning to build dedicated lanes that will solely be for the use of, of autonomous vehicles or AVs, not EVs, AVs. This radical program will help speed transport and cut traffic congestions while boosting safety. Special lanes for AV are being planned by the Japanese government as part of a wider plan for future proof of the roads, uh, the country's road networks. This isn't written very well. The plan will involve the use of the latest traffic control systems as well as in-vehicle technology in a bid to deliver uh, improved safety for users as well as better traffic flow at peak periods. Uh, camera and sensor technology will be utilized on existing road stretches to identify vehicle movements, as well as the presence of vulnerable road users. Safety will be a priority. Uh, the plan is being handled by Japan's economy, trade, and ministry industry, and will initially focus on a two-kilometer road stretch between JR Omika Station and the Hitachi Cameras facility. And I believe this is in Ibaragi, Ibaraki Prefecture, probably near like Tsukuba and it will be managed by Michinori Holdings. Um, at the same time, a self-driving car is under development by the Japanese firm Tiering, featuring technology that handles data received from onboard cameras and is able to control braking, acceleration, and steering. This is likely to be one of several vehicles able to use the special AV lanes. It is not clear as yet if other AVs being developed at present in China or the U.S., for example, will be permitted to use the Japanese AV lanes. 
<laughs> AV. AV also means audio visual and like AV stars in Japan means porn stars. So we have porn star traffic lanes. Yeah, just uh, lanes filled with, with yeah, parts of Kabukicho. A section of road used at present as part of the bus rapid transpre- uh, transit network will be one of the ro- first road sections to benefit from the technology allowing the use of autonomous vehicles. Blah, blah, blah. It goes on uh, from there. And, uh, yeah, so I just thought that was interesting that the the trend of making this technology come to fruition is expanding on the... Uh, on the governmental level and on the, on how is this, how is this said? Like the, um, the regulatory level, because the technology works, but the technology doesn't work with the current regulations. And I mean, imagine if you just put a bunch of cars and they start hitting kids and who's to blame and why did we do that? But if uh, Japan will kind of create the infrastructure for the cars to run on and then roll it out with that in mind, you're probably going to get into a lot fewer, roadblocks along the way. So that's the first one for today. Japan is planning uh, lanes for AVs. Um, Another similar one, and of course, you know, I always like to reiterate this, that uh, when we think about like facial recognition and AI and drones and uh, blockchain and internet of things, there's like the, it's very possible for it to turn us all into slave states or for corrupt government officials to weaponize it against uh, people. Like my, my, my one that I'm kind of worried about is like some dictator who hates gay people will gain access to like the grinder database and use that for facial recognition technology to see if there's some sort of genetic facial makeup for a typically gay person. And even if it's not uh, really that accurate, the dictator will hate gay people so much that it won't matter to him. So then he'll take a fleet of drones and weaponize the drones and then like put the facial recognition technology for potentially gay people into the drones and send the drones out into like 100,000 drones just streaming across the society or within the borders and just hunting the gays and then the gays who are maybe some of them aren't even gays get blown up by these drones. And this government guy is like, yes, that is my dream come true. Now the technology stacks exist for that technology to happen. But for me, for that to not happen is to kind of think about like, how can we analyze things instead of People And so when we use the technology for infrastructure or monitoring systems, it kind of works very well. And if we push that angle for this technology, then we can kind of live in a future society that's not just batshit crazy. Or even like, who cares if the government is monitoring the amount of traffic on a road? We're at that point now where it's like, it's not like it's one guy with one camera sneaking around on a road looking for license plates. I mean, we all have cameras. We're all connected to this integrated technology, techno, technological systems, these technological systems. There's, we're just part of it now. So we, we have to think about how to use that in the future. And then my idea is, yeah, don't go it into our heads, but put it onto the things and then we can exist in this more efficient world where we benefit from the monitoring of all this data. Uh, Another one along these lines, and we're not going to get too much into it, but it's similar to the previous one. uh, AI camera steers ships away from collisions in fog and darkness. Now, as we have uh, so many ships on the high seas delivering goods all over the world, it becomes more and more important to not crash into each other. Now, once you get more and more people with fewer, little, fewer and fewer training, and then with the COVID lockdowns where we saw a lot of uh, disruptions in the shipping industry, once you try to kick that thing back together, you're going to run into a lot of um, shenanigans, as it were. And the idea of having AI systems that will prevent ships from colliding with each other just only makes a whole lot of sense. So this comes to us from the Nikkei Asia, and won't read too much into it, but it says... A Japanese trading company, Marubeni, is partnering with Israeli startup Orca AI to equip ships with artificial intelligence cameras that aid visibility in fog or darkness to reduce collisions. 
Did you know that Israel is one of the leading countries in the development of AI? They are off the charts with their AI systems. It's insane. And I remember like hearing some people kind of fear like, what if China and Israel like teamed up real hard with their AI cameras and AI systems? Like they could do some really interesting things under the uh, guise of um, benefiting us all. Let's just continue. Orca AI's camera system, dubbed C-Pod, has accumulated over 20 million nautical miles worth of marine visual data, equivalent to 4,200 trans-Pacific trips between Japan and Los Angeles. The AI analyzes the big data from the footage, as well as from other parameters, such as weather-related delays, to improve situational awareness of potential collisions. Um, the system processes real-time camera footage to detect car- targets automatically and displays the results on a screen to assist in navigation. In low visibility due to fog, this screen will display ships, reefs, and other obstacles that lie ahead. Mautabeni will serve as Orca AI's distributor to marine shippers. The Japanese company is also testing the C-Pod system on a mid-sized bulk carrier owned by the group. And of course, I'll be posting a picture of that onto MatthewPMBigelow.com. It's just like a simple device that you would see on the side of a ship, and you wouldn't even probably realize it was even there. Um, and, you know, so besides Orca AI, Mauta Benny has partnered with uh, players such as Class NK to optimize routes using digital technologies. It has also been keen to digitize in fields involving crews and ships, such as by investing in Nippon Yusen's e-money platform for ship crews. I don't know what that means, but that doesn't sound very good. Yeah, here's your preliminary CBDC. Don't spend it all in one place. Or you should, because it's all going to go away in two weeks. Um... So there's that. What did I want to say about that? Right. Uh, Using these types of technologies on ships carrying a huge amount of weight, if, of course, preventing a collision is one thing, but also optimizing routes uh, can save on a lot of gasoline over time. So even if, like, the investment is quite high up and you only save 3%, on your overall cost. Well, when you have these giant ships, saving 3% cost on one of those ships will far outweigh the burden of investing in that technology. So it's like an immediate offset. And you make more money. And as a giant shipper from sea to sea to sea to sea, you might want to see what that's all about. All right. So anything else for, um, uh, yeah, let's do one more. Now, this last one isn't pertinent to Japan. This one is pertinent to China. And, of course, China's AI systems are probably the most advanced in, in terms of society-wide implementation. They're 15-minute cities. You have to scan a lot of your face even to buy uh, things from vending machines now. And in certain areas, your social credit score is hooked up to your um, wallet. And you, if you have a certain score of underneath, like, I think this score starts at something like 350 and it goes up to 850 or 950, something like that. If your score is under 550, then you can't use the vending machines. If your score is under 650, you can't use the trains. And if your score is under 750, then maybe your kids can't go to prestigious universities, something like that. So the there, there's like more and more punishments and less and less liberty, liberties depending on your score. And, of course, AI is, uh, and the monitoring systems therein are, are key to making this, this system happen. From autonomous, so this comes to us from Wangzhou, uh, China. Uh, hi, robot. Machines take over at China's Asian games. This comes to us from the AFP. From autonomous bug zappers to Android pianists <laughs> and driverless ice cream trucks, machines rule the world, at least at China's Asian games. The games open Saturday after a one-year delay because of COVID. Um, let's take a look here, uh, the, some of the examples. Robot dogs that can run, jump, and flip over patrol power supply facilities. Smaller versions dance with bright yellow Android plays the piano. Uh, driverless minibuses are set to shuttle visitors through the nearby city where baseball and softball venues are located. Athletes can put the ref- reflexes to the test against a table tennis playing pongbot. That would be good, right? Uh, your own little uh, AI trainer. 
At the massive media center, a blushing plastic and metal receptionist with a number pad and card slots built into its torso greets customers at a makeshift bank. That sounds stupid. Even venues were built with the help of construction robots, which organizers say are very cute with unique skills. Summing up how keen China is to push the theme at the games, the mascots, we won't do those, I don't really like those, um, at the business park, staff from Deep Robotics put some of the most advanced models through their paces, commanding one four-legged uh, bot to walk through construction rubble and sending another up a nearby pedestrian bridge slick with rain. At one point, a real dog turns up and they like each other. Um, now, a lot of these animal, the robots use biomimicry. So the they study the, the it's not like an emotional robot where it kind of looks like this cute doggy thing like a like the sony ibo these robots are the the people does like they study the biology of animals and the weight of animals and how their bones work and then they try to mimic that as closely as possible into their robotics they're basically copying and pasting the goad the the god code into their machines um there's the machine also collects data and there's a cooking robot and can also remind visitors to wear a mask. That happened to me once because I didn't wear a mask in Japan uh, during the pandemic. And I had the um, bank machine that had a camera on it uh, give me like a, hey, wear a mask message once. It's kind of weird. And that's going to sum it up for today's Japan Society 5.0. Not a major one, no crazy insanity, but we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. Japan Society 5.0. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology based, human centered society. industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing... Have you considered donating to the Japan What Podcast? Why not? Go to MatthewPMBigelow.com. Send us some traffic, at least. Check out the show notes, the photos, and more. You can also go to paypal.me forward slash japan w-u-t that's paypal.me forward slash japan w-u-t and what about podcasting 2.0 what's that well it's a brand new infrastructure podcasting apps or podcastapps.com i use podverse for the most part but there's also fountain podfans curiocaster and more get rid of those podcast legacy apps uh a lot of these companies, especially Apple, they're planning on getting rid of a lot of podcasts sometime soon. They're being forced to. The misinformation, malinformation, and disinformation campaigns that they're aligned with, eliminating, are going to see to it that that happens. Same thing with Spotify. Uh, they also enable, via protocol, for listeners to donate Satoshis, those are Bitcoin micropayments, directly from your GetAlby wallet to the podcaster. You can boost, you can send messages, and the podcasts look, the podcast apps look really nice. They're, they don't have a lot of ads on them, sometimes none at all, mine don't, and I really recommend getting involved with the next revolution to counteract big tech's censorious, insane nature that just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. Avoid the weirdness. Podcasting 2.0. MatthewPMBigelow.com for the Japan What Podcast. Thank you. Thank you indeed. Um, let's take a look now. Uh, uh, I was going to do this. Let's, let's actually do that. Let's take a look at the economy. Let's go. Here we go. go. Let's tie a couple of things here. Uh, I just want to get this on the record as well. So this comes to us uh, from uh, Mari Yamaguchi, uh, published on japantoday.com. Um, Kishida, PM Kishida, unveils gist of new economic passion as support for his government dwindles. Um, not going to focus a lot, but, you know, his government's very low support. 
uh, no matter what he does, it's just not really matching up to much. And um, he has this plan called New Capitalism, and that's World Economic Forum speak. That's kind of what I wanted to do. So um, what he wants the new economic pa- package to be, and like, let, let's just try to do this all at once, okay? This is this is a gist, but this is what he wants to do. <laughs> Kishida said the new government the economic package would include measures to ease the impact on rising prices to achieve sustainable wage increases and income growth. He also pledged to promote domestic investment in areas such as semiconductors to help growth while combating rapidly declining births and populations and to ensure reinforced defense and disaster prevention. That's all. And he he promised a speedy implementation by the end of October. But now his government plans to fund hefty costs needed for lower birth measures and military buildup is unknown. Um... So, I mean, just try, just try doing any, how can you find a way to like in one day work, play golf, cook and clean the house, and then also go out at night and go to a movie and a show. Like that's almost impossible to do if you have any sort of responsibility. Now this guy, he just wants to, he wants to tackle inflation. He also more wage increases and income growth. You know, that's what the government does, right? Promote domestic investment in semiconductors and also take care of the declining population problem. And in addition, we need to rebuild the military and prevent disasters. Like that's a crazy amount of economic packaging. And um, he's obviously in kind of trouble. And there's probably a lot of factions that are trying to, uh, eat his lunch because he hasn't been deli- de- de- delivering. Um, let's see if they mention in this article his uh, new capitalism. Capitalism. Uh, nope, just in the comments. So when he was running, he was talking about his new capitalism for growth. Now, we're just going to take a moment here and connect Mr. Kishida to a lot of the World Economic Forum talking points. And this is all documented and it's quoting. And I have the quotes directly in front of me. So, in a meeting with the New World, the New World Order Economic Forum, uh, the World Economic Forum between Mr. Klaus Schwab and Mr. Kishida, um, Mr. Kishida ran on a platform of new capitalism. And then at the World Economic Forum, with the meeting between Klaus Schwab, this is on the YouTube channel, uh, like the official YouTube channel, not some other like, this is the truth about, you know, it's not one of those. It's like, this is the World Economic Forum using YouTube as its uh, platform to promote its messaging systems. This is an interview between, uh, or a conversation between Klaus Schwab and, and Mr. PM Kishida. And in, in, the, in this interview, Klaus Schwab says, we're particularly following your concept of new capitalism because we are very much to committed to what we call stakeholder capitalism. And of course, stakeholder capitalism is a Klaus Schwab term meaning the experts get to decide everything. Or it's similar, in a, it's, it's adjacent to activist investing, where you have like a small group of people that try to steer the company in a new direction. So there's stakeholder capitalism. So that's one thing. And then um, furthermore, um, the courtesy call on Prime Minister Kishida by Professor Klaus Schwab, uh, which is from the Japanese government website, uh, they said Prime Minister Kishida emphasized his determination to lead global discussions um, towards the Center for the... and also other projects underway, such as the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution Japan. That's on the government website, and there's a picture of Kishida and Schwab there. The Fourth Industrial Revolution is another book title by uh, Klaus Schwab, and it was also mentioned... And no, it was not. It was something else. Uh, but it, I was talking about the Society 5.0. So there's a lot of like vocabulary being repeated. Like fourth, when you say the fourth industrial revolution, it, it's it's obviously targeted vocabulary, and it's not it's not necessarily coded. But I mean, if you're in an in group, you're probably aware of what that means. Um, and then uh, Professor Schwab, after expressing his gratitude to Prime Minister Kishida's special address on the new form of capitalism, um, he pointed out the importance of stakeholder capitalism. So 
that was, again, at a different meeting between PM Kishida and WEF founder Klaus Schwab, directly mentioning in the same sentence, new capitalism and stakeholder capitalism. Uh, these are some of the books that Klaus Schwab has written, Stakeholder Capitalism, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, and that was mentioned in the Society 5.01, and COVID-19, The Great Reset. Now, before even Prime Minister Kishida was elected, um, at another World Economic Forum uh, event uh, hosted on YouTube, was called Japan's Great Reset from Davos Agenda 2021. And... Even before Kishida was elected, these people were talking about the search for um, new uh, capitalism or secular capitalism, but they called it the journey, the new journey to search new capitalism or sustainable or stakeholder capitalism under the Great Reset. And this is a lot of uh, Japanese business leaders or, you know, people involved in, in, in business circles that go on these, they're from like major corporations in Japan, going to YouTube to talk to the World Economic Forum before Mr. Kishida was elected, and they're talking about stakeholder capitalism and new capitalism almost interchangeably. So when everybody kind of says that Mr. Kishida's new capitalism is like some sort of mystery and we don't know even know what it means, but let's try to analyze his thinking and see what it means, you don't really need to go far uh, to understand what this means. And it only it, these these economic ties go beyond just like Mr. Prime Minister Kishida, of course. I don't think it's like one person colluding with another people. These are agencies and initiatives that interoperate with each other. And this comes to, I covered this earlier this year in April, uh, but this was when Japan was hosting the G7. And of course, on the sidelines, they had like a side meeting between the World Economic Forum and the G7 Public Private Event Digital Transformation Summit. And Digital Minister Taro Kono um, made an appearance there also via Avatar. And they were talking about the data free flow with trust, which was a concept proposed by Japan at the World Economic Forum Annual Summit in 2019. That comes to us from kyotonews.net. But it said it was proposed by Japan. The data free flow with trust was a concept proposed by Japan. Well, it was proposed by a group in Japan. But what group was it that promoted that idea? Well, it was the newly established Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, Japan. So these are like, this is all like top, top level shit going on here. And it doesn't really affect me on a day-to-day -day basis or you on a day-to-day -day basis. But when you kind of wonder like, why is everything just spinning its wheels and not going anywhere? Or when they say, oh, we need wage growth or we need more sustainability and stuff like this. I, I, I think it's like a giant middle management new kind of like middleman suction class where they where they consult and they come in like people from the world economic forum and they interact with the government on all these high levels and they they try to come with all these like newfangled solutions for 2030 sdgs and they just talk and talk and talk it doesn't really go anywhere sometimes you might get a windmill or some solar panels or like an event like where somebody will say are we are you we're opening this uh, building with sustainable glass and people will be like, wow, and they all come with their SDG pins and their lapels and they go, we are the new good people and we're doing everything we can to make the world a better place. But it's not becoming a better place. It's just a giant sucking sound coming out of the economy with these new initiatives that aren't really designed to go anywhere. They're, they're kind of purposefully designed, the SDG wheel uh, spinning and spinning and spinning its wheels and just sucking as much money out of everything into the vortex of the SDG to keep the SDG going. It's like a new form of like supra bureaucracy that's really entangling the world and everybody else into like a, a nothingness because nothing comes out of it. It's not like they make products that people want. It's not like they develop things that are better than it was before. They just like, they just slap a giant label on it and charge a billion dollars for something that isn't really sustainable or isn't really growth. 
and then it could have been done cheaper and better by just letting letting people do what they need to do with with more without having to pay money to these kind of crooks. It's like a eco left wing gangsterism at this point, and it makes everybody feel warm and fuzzy inside because you're told you're saving the earth, but really you're just like a new form of tax collector. And that's the uh, economic news for today. Die for the war, everybody moves. Die for the good, for the good. Die for the war, die for the war. All right. War. We're finally getting to it. Very interesting developments. Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, the uh, sort of brief interaction with the intelligence community uh, and I don't really like interacting with the intelligence community. I think there's a there's too much of an interaction between the podcast world and the intelligence community world. Like so many podcasters are like they're so excited to say we have on our podcast today an ex CIA member who was responsible for and he did this and she da 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 da. And I wonder. Really, are the ex-CIA people just going on podcasts because they're bored or they got kicked out, they're disgruntled, or is there something else going on? I wonder what it could be. Uh, so, But, you know, at the same time, they are very familiar with their world and all of the defense papers and all that that go along with it. So, I don't know, rubbing shoulders with them sometimes is okay, especially on a communications platform like Twitter, I don't have to go meet them in real life. Uh, but anyways, um, uh, I've, I've, I've kind of spoken harshly about Mr. Elbridge Colby before, but I'm going to say thank you very much for the information he imparted on us today. Um, we're just going to, we're going to jump into the, the war news by just coming up with a little bit of <laughs> news from the Mainichi, Japan's National Daily, 1922. I'm laughing because I, I remember seeing this guy's face. I'm looking at his picture right now. Uh, he looks like a cocaine um, frog alien man in a, in a human suit. Uh, you have to go see this guy. So I thought they were going to take it down by now. It's such a crazy picture. USI setting up Space Force unit in Japan amid China's rise. Uh, now, this is today is we're not going to focus on weapons so much, but we're going to focus on radar and communications, actually, because that's you know, part of my past specialty. Tokyo. The U.S. Space Force is considering setting up a unit in Japan. Its top uniformed officer said Monday in Tokyo, underscoring the importance of bilateral collaboration in the space domain where China is ramping up its capabilities. Um, the move comes as the U.S. Space Force is expanding its presence in the Asia region. Why not expand it in space? It's infinite. In November, it established a unit within the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command based in Hawaii, followed by the creation of a subordinate unit in South Korea in December. Saltzman, the U.S. Space Force's chief of space operations, was not specific about the location. Um, however, he mentioned possible candidates would include the Yokota Air Base in western Tokyo. And it, it kind of goes on from there. So I'm just kind of using the news as, a, as an intro point to that because we're going to get into some defense papery stuff um, uh, pretty soon here. Now, um, I was interacting with Elbridge Colby on Twitter and he posted like an article and sometimes his writing is a little like rhetorical where he's like, we need to find a new path forward because the path we're on right now isn't good enough and we might be taken by surprise and there's these other paths, but should we take them, the path that we need to take? So it doesn't really get specific. So I asked him for some specifics, and he kindly replied and gave me some specifics. And those specifics led to more specifics, which led to more specifics, which led to more specifics. So it's not like he's um, like a vapid uh, cloak of just somebody from the intelligence community emerging from the curtains to kind of shout things at the public to, to, to steer things in a certain direction, although he may be, I don't know him personally. But at the same time, he certainly knows his stuff, it seems. So this comes to us from a, um, the case of for urgency against China. And this is for five priorities for the Air Force's future combat Air Force, the, strategic for, uh, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And this comes to us, this looks like a giant paper and it's very long, 
But one thing that was mentioned in one of the information packages that I received from Mr. Colby was advances in threat sensors and post-processing capabilities. Now, this is going to be very, very interesting. I hope you're into radar. <laughs> and I hope you're into monitoring uh, because we'll get into the, the crux of it. But now that we have ground radar, now that we have space radar, now that we have balloon networks, remember the balloon that was going over the states from China? Well, those can be used as radar as well. And now that we have systems to incorporate all of that data together and then using AI imaging systems, you can gain a kind of like a, a real-time or a near, near real-time like space-to-ground threat assessment level based on this new monitoring technology. And it's not like it's camera. It's, it's, it's blips and blobs showing up in radar that can be refined by AI into likely images. And it goes on and on and on. So that's kind of where we are at today. So when we think about China in taking Taiwan and that uh, beyond Taiwan is like an empty expanse of sea and then there's America on the other side and the long-term American interests say that China, if they gain access to Taiwan, then they'll gain access to the Pacific Ocean very easily, thereby threatening U.S. hegemony. And then China and um, its, its, its rise is, is now has this giant, powerful navy. And Japan is also like kind of on America's side, but also historically very connected to China. And uh, there's a whole bunch of American military bases in, in, in Japan. And can they be used for that? But as we see Russia and China getting closer and closer together and now incorporating North Korea, the initial plan for America to use Japan as like a launch pad to, Ch to China or the Taiwan Strait to take out PLA ships might be threatened because Japan is is home to so many Chinese people now, and it also has like a population of about thirty thousand North Koreans. Like they go to North Korean schools, they have like this North Korean identity. They have pictures of Kim Jong Un and Kim Jong Sil in their schools, and they when like they launch rockets in North Korea, they go outside and salute at times. If uh, if North Korea is 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 incorporated into this fear with Russia and China. And well, then now, now Japan has to worry about a potential insurgency if 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 the leader of North Korea tells its diaspora, mainly located in 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 Korea, I guess, and then also in in, in Japan, to uh, do some shiznat. Well, maybe most of the thirty thousand Chongrong, whatever they call the North Korean people in Japan won't do anything, but maybe there's a few that will. So it kind of puts Japan on like a different footing strategically as opposed to just being able to be used by the American allies or part of a greater allied forces as a launch pad into Taiwan. All of these things are happening at the same time. It's shifting, it's pushing, and we're kind of setting up the chessboard here for potential war in 2027. And Russia and China, with their advances in radar technology and assessment threats, is a major part of that because if they are able to, as a defensive measure, being, be able to really see what's coming over the horizon towards them, they'll be able to prepare for it very easily and in a much more likely like successful, successful measure, as we've seen Russia be able to do uh, in the past year or so with its um, takeover of Ukraine and its ability to thwart most of NATO's um, attacks onto Russia's newly acquired land there. Uh, maybe Russia and China are, are sharing this data with each other and incorporating it, in, and then China might be able to incorporate it into its wider People's Liberation Army computer defense networks to improve its AI sensors and AI capabilities on the Taiwanese um, front lines in advance of uh, a preemptive attack on Taiwan. And then if, 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 if America and its allies attack China, well, China's already developed a large database to identify threats via its uh, integrated radar systems uh, to thwart uh, retaliatory attacks uh, after it kind of comes into Taiwanese space. Let's take a look here. Russian and China AIDs, AIDS. Oh, I forgot to look that up. Coming up after that giant rant, AIDS radar. What does that even mean? That was a pretty fun little rant, by the way. AIDS. 
Um, radar. NATO, Integrated Air Defense Systems. Okay, Integrated Air Defense Systems. Russia and Chinese integrated air defense systems include networks of ground-based, airborne, maritime, and space-based multi-phenomenology uh, sensor and communication systems that improve the range, density, and sophistication of their surveillance operations. And I'm reading today, I'm reading from right now the um, five priorities for the Air Force's future combat air force from the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Advances in sensor resolution, post-processing power, data storage capacity, and fusing information from sensors in multiple domains have improved their ability to locate, track, and engage airborne threats. Both Russia and China exploit the strategic depth of their home territory to create sensor and communication networks that enable them to engage U.S. forces before they can do the same. Operating from their own territory reduces constraints on the size, weight, and power generation capabilities of their sensor networks compared to U.S. sensor networks that must deploy to a fight in that region, right, towards Taiwan. Taking advantage of the recent successful gray zone operations, Russia is deploying sensor and weapons in Crimea. Oh, shit. And China is, has deployed sensors and weapons on islands it has occupied or created in the South China Sea. Yeah, so all those like, hey, they're, they're using these islands in the South China Sea as like uh, military bases. Well, they're, maybe they're using them as radar bases. Maybe they have balloon networks that can launch up. Or maybe they have buoys, that uh, networks of buoys that can connect to satellites and create, you know, very accurate 3D radar mapping technology and, and threat assessment uh, abilities. Both are simultaneously pursuing a variety of early warning and control aircraft, UAS, aerostats, and balloons that will better detect low-altitude airborne targets at standoff distances. Advanced digital signal processing and the introduction of active electronically scanned array radar technologies have significantly improved the detection range and resolution of Chinese and Russian radars that operate in lower frequency bands. Now, when you're looking, when you're considering like um, uh, lower frequency, uh, depending on who you talk to, engineers will debate what is a low frequency and what is a high frequency. But generally speaking, a lower frequency would get you a lower resolution of an image. Uh, but the range of low frequency radar is much farther or much broader, whereas very, very uh, high uh, frequency bands uh, can generate super accurate imaging, uh, but it doesn't go very far, or it can be easily blocked by things like rain or clouds or flocks of birds or something like that. One of the limitations. So if you rely on too much of the low resolution, well, you get a lot of data, but you can't process the data until now. Combined with passive sensors and other technologies discussed below, radars that operate in lower frequency bands could improve China's and Russia's ability to detect some low observable aircraft designs. Due to their poor resolution and other limitations, earlier generation low frequency radars could not develop target quality tracks. However, Advances in signal processing have enabled pulse compression techniques that improve the range resolution of low-frequency radars, and the introduction of AESA technologies have improved their directional resolution. Uh, I'm not going to look up what AESA means. Um, so uh, another paper, that's the end of that section. The next one is very similar, but it just contains more key vocabulary should you be interested in it. This comes to us, the future conflict operating environment out to 2030 from the Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies. This comes to us from post-processing. Uh, post-processing, again, with the level of ability of computers and compute power and data sensors and things like that, uh, combined with uh, models and AI models, a lot of people like pan that, but once you apply it to technical things that exist in a technical nature and what I mean by that, it's like the, for example, the F-14 Tomcat always looks like an F-14 Tomcat. There's not a very lot of variability. If you have a low resolution radar in the past, it might 
find a, a F-14 Tomcat, but it wouldn't identify an F-14 Tomcat. But now with post-processing and data centers, you might be able to get enough low-resolution imagery of an F-14 Tomcat to distinguish it from other airplanes and find some key distinguishing patterns inside of that that would that would signal to a defense system, hey, we might have an F-14 Tomcat over there. So that's kind of what that means. So the post-processing ability is a key component now for national security measures, especially when considering the narrow Taiwan Strait and how America and Japan and South Korea and the Philippines would launch a counterattack against China. Could we even do that if China and Russia have combined enough uh, data to power their frontline radar defense systems to identify what's coming at them in real time without having to rely on cameras and so on. And then if that happens, the you know, send them, let's just say like an attack is coming up to, um, from the Philippines to Taiwan to counterattack a Chinese advance. Um, the Chinese radars identify that. And then to prevent Japan from launching, uh, from the allies or American forces of using Japan to use a, a launch pad to attack Taiwan, North Korea gets a signal and they are commanded then to tell their diaspora existing inside of Japan to start stirring shit up at military bases to try to prevent the takeoff of uh, planes to counterattack um, or to assist in the attack with the Philippines, like a coordinated attack onto the Chinese Liberation, uh, or the People's Liberation Army conducting um, missions in the Taiwanese Strait trying to take over Taiwan, right? So you could kind of see like, not only could this be used in a um, in a tactical way, not not a tactical. Not only could this be used in a way that would involve uh, incendiary objects or bullets or missiles and stuff like that. You could also use it as a way to trigger um, social unrest in a country to slow down a military response uh, and to kind of cut off or cut through an, a coordinated plan. Uh, where that would see Japan launch in tandem with the Philippines into in, uh, to attack, like a pincer attack onto some People's Liberation Army stuff. No, no, no. The Philippines start moving out. The China defense systems identify that. Then Kim Jong-un sends out a message on social media for the... To, to the Japanese, the South, the North Korean diaspora in Japan to start shit up to prevent a coordinated attack going back into, um, from Japan into the Taiwanese Strait. I think, I think you know what I mean by now. I'm going to stop talking about that. Um, so post-processing. Many such exotic de detection technologies, this is, the, this is the key vocab right here, such as wake vortex tracking, quantum radar, three-dimensional meter and decimeter wavelength radar and low-Earth satellites' infrared scan and track techniques have serious limitations when used as primary sensors as they have limited capacity to generate target-grade weapon queuing data. However, they offer advantages in detecting threats which are difficult to track using standard um, X and Q-band radars and can be extremely useful for queuing and other higher resolution sensors if adequately integrated into a common system or picture. Boom! So that's going to be more or less the war section for today. And now you can see why the Space, the space Force, U.S. Space Force, wants to set up more bases and stuff like that into Japan and to Korea, especially when you consider Russia and China integrating their systems, potentially integrating their systems more and more in preparation to launch counterattacks. Sorry, I hope we're not counterattacks to, to disrupt American-based counterattacks on the People's Liberation Army when it's trying to take over Taiwan. Anyways, I find the whole thing very fascinating. And this is like, uh, of course, we all want to see like the cannons go boom and the missiles lift off. and We don't want to see it, but that's kind of what we think about. But um, the, the comms status and the integration of the comms and especially using AI and post-processing to improve sort of legacy technologies and make their um, detection capabilities 
suddenly like boom, crazy, amazing, way better than before would be a key component for uh, establishing advanced defense systems and in addition to prepare and uh, conduct uh, anti-attacks using social media as well to trigger unrest in neighboring states to disrupt those pre-planned coordinated systems between uh, allied countries. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. But anyways, that's kind of the war segment for today. Very fascinating. Thank you very much, War, for a great segment. Die for the war, everybody moves. Die for the good, for the good. Die for the war, die for the war. So that's going to be the podcast for today. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, You found it from the back end of Tokyo in the armpit of Asia. It's me, MatthewPMBigelow.com. Go to MatthewPMBigelow.com. Thank you for listening, everyone. Until next time. Ja, ja, mata, man. It's a good tuna, but I think I paid too much. You.